0: Welcome to Herd at Heritage. Herd at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Scholars and Scribes Review the Rulings, the Supreme Court's 2022-2023 term. Please welcome Giancarlo Canaparo, Senior Legal Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies.
1: Well, welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our annual review. I apologize for the technical difficulties which caused the delay. Um, the bugs in the system, they are always there. But uh, so, well, it is a perennial problem with Supreme Court reviews, technical issues aside, that there is always so much to talk about and so little time. So you will hear nothing more from me but for the introductions. We are joined today by Jennifer Mascott, Professor of Law and Co-Executive Director of the Boyden C. Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason. Her research focuses on administrative law, constitutional law, the separation of powers. She earned her law degree from George Washington, clerked for then Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Justice uh, Thomas. Jen, please come to the stage. Following Jen is uh, Robert Barnes, the Supreme Court reporter for the Washington Post. He has been a reporter and editor at the Post since 1987. I won't tell you where I was then, He started covering Maryland politics. (laughs) He served as the Metropolitan Editor, the National Politics Editor, and has covered the Supreme Court since 2006. Uh, Joining him is Jess Braven, the Supreme Court correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. He is a distinguished lecturer, in addition to a correspondent, author of two books, The Terror Courts, about the military trials at Guantanamo Bay, and Squeaky, The Life and Times of Lynette Alice Fromm. He has also contributed to books and treatises about violence in America, uh, war crimes, and even logic, formal and informal. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Berkeley Law. And finally, Cannon Shamigan, chair of the Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation Practice and managing partner at the law firm Paul Weiss here in their Washington office. He has argued more than 30 cases before the Supreme Court, including one this term, Samia versus United States. He has argued more than 100 appeals in state and federal appellate courts. Prior to private practice, he served as Assistant Solicitor General at the DOJ and as a law clerk to Judge J. Michael Ludig and Antonin Scalia. He is a graduate of Harvard College, Oxford, and Harvard Law. Welcome, my panelists, to the stage. So we will uh, start, you know, obviously, um, I think we have to start like uh, like last year with the biggest biggest fish in the pond or the biggest elephant in the room. So Students for Fair Admissions, Professor Mascot, take us away.
2: All right, so I'll be talking today about Students for Fair Admissions and then the student loan case. And both of these decisions actually were six three decisions and they were issued on the last two days of the term and that might suggest as a lot of commentary did that the term was very uh, divisive and political and along normal ideological lines because it was the six three that you might um, expect if you looked at um, the appointing presidents for the justices and these big anticipated cases. Uh, But before I get into students for fair admissions, I wanna just kind of push back a little bit on that and give context maybe for the whole discussion um, so some analysis that's been done of the cases of this term, and as the folks on the stage know uh, better than I, um, it, it was fewer cases than, you know, historically it keeps becoming fewer and fewer cases. So to the extent that there are still enough cases to even assess trends, um, you know, actually the 6-3 cases were not, or decisions were not necessarily always, you um, during the term with the alignment that, that one might think. Um, some recent analysis uh, said, it's pointed out that there were 14 6-3 decisions last term, 11 this term, which is fewer, but only five of the 11 this term actually were the 6-3 lineup in the two cases that I'm going to discuss. And that actually the justice who was in the majority the least frequently was Justice Thomas, who you would think, well, he is part of the traditional uh, 6 three that you would think would would be deciding major cases. But nonetheless, he and then I think Justice Alito was tied with um, maybe perhaps Justice Kagan for being uh, in the majority the next uh, fewest times. So because of some uh, decisions that were not necessarily um, aligned with um, business interests in the voting rights case, there were actually quite a number of decisions this term that did not come down with the anticipated alignment, despite starting with the big fish um, that Heritage has been talking about today. They're not necessarily indicative of the alignment of all of the cases uh, this term. So students for fair admissions, I mean, this was obviously a very highly anticipated case, perhaps the biggest consequence Constitutional law case of this term um, in comparison to Dobbs, which was the big uh, decision last term that everybody was waiting for, along with Bruin. Um, and students for fair admission dealt with uh, affirmative action. And I think a few interesting issues about the decision. I mean, the facts of the holding, I think most people No, right, the Harvard and UNC programs were challenged uh, either or both for for violating the Equal Protection Clause uh, because of uh, discriminating or making distinctions on the basis of uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, um, but also for violating statutory requirements in Title VI that prohibit discrimination uh, for schools receiving federal funds, Um, One interesting thing about the cases, they were originally joined together, but they were argued then separately with two separate attorneys because of the purposes of uh, Justice Jackson recusing from the Harvard decision. Although nonetheless, when the opinion came down, I guess because the justices were arguably deciding it more broadly or more across the board than perhaps they could have, they issued one decision to cover both cases as opposed to hinging more on the specific facts of the Harvard program or the specific facts of the UNC program, they really did take on uh, more uh, a full-throated analysis of the constitutionality of racial preferences in admissions in general. And so because of that, we're able to do that in one decision. Interestingly, the recusal then was carried out essentially through a notation at the end of the opinion that Justice Jackson was not part of the deliberations in the Harvard case. She did write a separate dissent, I guess presumably just on um, UNC, um, but in any case, with the decisions, um, we did have Justice Thomas writing separately as well. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh writing separately. Justice Kavanaugh did what he has is developing now a practice of doing, which was to describe how the decision, even though it might appear to be. Um, overruling precedent since the court in the past had not found certain affirmative action programs to be inconsistent with the Constitution. He was writing to flag how he thinks that this decision is sort of in line with the court's past decisions, trying to, um, I think, dial down the temperature a little bit, make it seem more modest. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, took his um, well-worn approach of, um, well-drawn approach of describing how the holding of the court, even though the court's majority opinion was not uh, principally describing originalism, how the holding of the case um, was consistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. Um, and then how did we get to the sixth justice majority? Well, essentially, the, the holding basically said that racial preferences cannot be used as racial preferences in admissions, that that making these kinds of racial distinctions is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, I mean, the court, I suppose, I mean, really didn't leave much room, and perhaps the panelists will disagree with me, but didn't really leave much room, I don't think, for using racial preferences as preferences in general. So in that sense, it it arguably was uh, was quite broad. Um, How did all six justices get there? Well, I think jurisprudentially, um, each of them um, you know, tend to have a more textual approach to the Constitution, and so they're seeing the racial preferences as violating the equal protection uh, provisions in the 14th Amendment. But also, this case was interesting, I think, in how it was argued, because it, um, it took a look at actually not just the benefit being given to one racial group or set of racial groups, um, under the Constitution, or the or the distinction here, but but really unpacked in an evidentiary manner in the lower courts stereotypes against Asian Americans, and so I think the context perhaps of looking specifically at the harms to some groups and not just the benefits to others perhaps gave context that allowed everybody to land where where they did here. And just one final point, um, I think there's one interesting distinction uh, between this from this decision with the Dobbs decision last year, where it was really five one three six supporting the judgment, but the Chief Justice wrote separately because he did not want to sign on to, um, to Roe in case he'd been overruled. Here technically the majority opinion doesn't expressly speak of overruling any past precedent. Um, perhaps that is one reason why the Chief felt comfortable joining it in joining it and being part of the majority opinion. He was then able to assign it to himself to write. How did he get Justice Thomas? Well, Justice Thomas wrote separately to say essentially the majority opinion really did overrule precedent. And so I just wonder, it's interesting to think about the dynamics behind the scenes. Of course, we don't know, but did the justices avoiding the express statement of overruling in contrast to the Dobbs decision, make the chief feel more comfortable writing as the chief? Would folks like Justice Thomas, who take more of a purist view, have negotiated and gotten stronger statements in the opinion to feel comfortable signing it? How did they get the six justices to all sign on to the reasoning? It's sort of an interesting thing, I think, to unpack. But it is a notable distinction from Dobbs, where much was made of the fact that the chief sort of lost the majority there for his approach
1: in that case. What do our other panelists think? You know, what, what survives of the, of the Grutter and Gratz precedents, if anything? What do you think? Well,
3: <clears throat> I had a couple of questions about this case, and maybe, maybe, Jen, you've thought about this. I wondered if um, the decision in, uh, in Students for Fair Admissions was in tension with the uh, decision in, in 303 Creative, the other major constitutional case, or another major constitutional case that we saw this term, where it elevated the free speech right of a private party to discriminate uh, in order to, you know, for their expressive rights, over a state interest in promoting um, equal treatment. And I wonder if there is a is there a First Amendment element like that that a private organization like, uh, like Harvard College would have, uh, and is, you know, are the theories that go forward in through three creative about that right of uh, expression and relatedly right of association in tension with the, the, the holding in students for fair admission, which, uh, which does not seem to recognize those kinds of rights to, to be, be exempted from, from uh, uh, an uh, e- equal protection type of uh, regime?
2: Well, I think that's an interesting um, connection to, to try to raise between the two cases, although I think, I mean, 303 three Creative really in the end was about you know, individual expression. And I think what the court seems to clearly be focused against in Students for Fair Admissions is the categorical approach. They actually, the one point that I didn't raise at the end is the chief does um, suggest that race could potentially still be a consideration if somebody talks about how their racial background has impacted particular other aspects of their character. Maybe I'm um, going through adversity through being mistreatment has led to certain character traits or whatever. And so on that individual basis that individual connection there race can still be considered. And I think I think my, my inclination is that was probably put in partly to a response to some of the discussion that happened in oral argument where some of the advocates were saying well, we don't want race to be disfavored in a sense. Like if an applicant in their essay can mention every characteristic, we're gonna be negative and discriminating against race as a separate characteristic if we don't allow folks to mention it. So it can be mentioned in an individual way, considered in an individual way. But we can't just raise up one group of people over another. And I don't think on that point, there's much that I saw in the 303 creative decision to be at odds with it, in particular since um, there's a lot made at the beginning of that opinion highlighting how the wedding website designer said she actually would serve people of all backgrounds. She just didn't want to be forced to be a mouthpiece for a particular message that was
1: at odds with her convictions. Cannon, since we brought up 303, would you mind giving us a rundown on that case?
0: Yeah, sure. So. Um First of all, it's always great to be at uh, the Heritage Foundation and always great to participate in this panel, though, as I, I think I've joked every single time since I've been here, I'm neither a scholar nor a scribe, so this should really be entitled <laughs> Scholars, Scribes, and Some Random Lawyer Dude <laughs> Reviews and um, so If I'm you're the random
1: some lawyer random dude. lawyer dude,
0: <laughs> well, I don't know what I am. So, <laughs> uh, I am uh, I have, I have the, uh, the token practicing lawyer on this panel, so um, 303 Creative is you know, a case that, you know, at a very high level could be said to pit, you know, the um, interests in free speech, First Amendment protected interests against the interests of LGBTQ individuals. But the question in the case um, really depends on how you sort of characterize what's actually going on. And so let me um, set out the facts as best I can. Um, The case uh, was brought by a, a Colorado woman, Lori Smith, who is a website designer and she designs websites for uh, weddings and the question in the case is whether um, she uh, has the right under the First Amendment to refuse to design a website for a same-sex wedding. And what's um, interesting about the case and I think significant in some ways is that it arises in the context of a pre-enforcement challenge. And what that essentially means is that she is um suing preemptively. So this is not a situation where you have an actual same-sex couple who, you know, uh, uh, wanted to have a website designed, and she denied them that opportunity and said she's suing because she wants essentially to have the ability not to design a website. And uh, Colorado um, has indicated that it would enforce its anti-discrimination laws, its public accommodation laws against her. And so the case comes to the Supreme Court, as we lawyers say, on stipulated facts, namely that, you know, her claimed injury here is that she would be, you know, likely to be asked to design such a website and wishes to have the right not to do so. And that becomes significant for, you know, a reason I'll come to in a minute. So the case um, comes up to the Supreme Court. And in one of those relatively rare six to three decisions where the justices divide on so-called partisan lines with the six Republican appointees in the majority, uh, the court says that Ms. Smith indeed does have a First Amendment right to, Uh, 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 choose not to design the website for uh, a a same-sex wedding. Um, This was thankfully one of the relatively few big cases where there were only two opinions, so you can actually (laughs) print out the opinions in this case without refilling the printer uh, paper tray. Uh, That was a rare quality this year in the big cases. Um, And the majority opinion was written by Justice Gorsuch. The dissenting opinion uh, was written by Justice Sotomayor. There's been a lot of speculation about why Justice Gorsuch, particularly in a term where it seems like virtually every majority opinion we're going to discuss was written by the Chief Justice. The Chief Justice exercised his prerogative to keep seemingly almost all of the big cases this term, but not this one. Now, notably, Justice Gorsuch was the author of the Bostock opinion, the case that uh, recognized that Title VII prohibits discrimination against same-sex individuals. Maybe that was at the back of the Chief's mind when he decided to give Justice Gorsuch this opinion. Um, Justice Gorsuch, um, as is his wont, made this um, seem like a pretty straightforward application of First Amendment principles. He said that this is basically a case involving, first of all, expression and the expression of Ms. Smith, because any website has a certain amount of First Amendment-protected content in the speech and design uh, of the website. And therefore, when you're thinking about this in terms of First Amendment doctrine, this is really a case, in the majority's view, that involves a doctrine known as the compelled speech doctrine, a doctrine that basically says the government can't force you to engage in speech that you do not wish to engage in. And ultimately, really, although there are 70 pages of opinion, so you still have to have a reasonably full paper tray on your printer, um, the case, I think, really boils down to a couple of questions. First, whether or not you characterize this as a case involving speech and expression rather than conduct. And there's a vigorous back and forth between the majority and the dissent about that. Um, Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, on behalf of the three Democratic appointees, says this is really a case where any speech, if there is speech, is incidental to conduct. Um, it's the act of designing the website. And so this is a service provider. It's no different from, say, somebody who you know, offers hotel rooms and then denies um, uh, hotel rooms to someone who might have a constitutionally protected characteristic. And so that dispute, I think, looms really large in the case because how you view the case constitutionally, I think, really depends on the answer to that question. And similarly, you know, I think as a result, Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, from the very first paragraph, says, you know, this is really about the denial of service to a class of individuals. And so it's really, you know, in her view, you know, again, not so much about the expression as it is about you know, sort of saying, you know, there are these people who come, at least theoretically, to Ms. Smith and and ask for her wedding website design services, and what she is basically doing is saying, I'm not going to provide those services to same-sex individuals, and therefore this is um, comparable to, you know, the hotel operator, the paradigmatic hotel operator who refuses, for instance, to rent rooms to, you know, say, an, an interracial couple. Um, I think there are a couple of aspects of the case that are significant um, going forward. The first is that you you do have to have some degree of expression in order for the principle of 303 creative to kick in. And so where do the sort of outer bounds of that lie? When does a case truly tip into the category of involving only conduct? At least in the context of weddings, we've seen innumerable permutations of this issue. We've seen wedding photographers who bring similar claims. We've seen, of course, famously, a cake baker whose case came to the supreme court which triggered you know the somewhat bizarre um scene of you know whole amicus priests devoted to the question of whether there is a first amendment component to cake baking
4: um
0: (laughs) and uh and so that i think is question number one and then question number two is that when the court took this case it took pains to really grant review only on the question of free speech and thus took the issue of religion out of the equation so it really left For another day, the question of whether the um, uh, Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment um, could also provide similar or perhaps even greater protections to an an individual or an entity uh, uh, seeking um, uh, 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 similar protection And, and query whether in a case involving the Free Exercise Clause the court might grant potentially even broader protection. That issue, I think, remains to be seen. There was one footnote um, before I subside uh, about this case, which was I think literally the day before the opinion came out. Um, there was a suggestion in the press that um, there was a fact in the case that, that might in fact have been in dispute, namely that in the record there was someone who through Ms. Smith's website you know, claimed to be a same-sex individual seeking access to her services um, and the report uh, was that, in fact, the person who was named was um, not the person who made that submission, that, that a reporter, an enterprising reporter, contacted that person, and, um, and it turned out not to be the same person. It turned out that person wasn't even uh, gay. That person was straight. Um, I think that that proved not to be significant for the simple reason that in a pre-enforcement challenge, you know, whether or not there is, in fact, somebody who is being denied service is kind of neither here nor there. And interestingly, the majority of opinions, I think, took pains to highlight other facts um, that it viewed as the stipulated facts, namely, you know, Ms. Smith's desire not to provide, these, um, uh, uh, provide her services to, in, to individuals who um, were uh, seeking those services for same-sex um, weddings. And so, and and even though that came out right before the opinion, there was, uh, you know, I think no suggestion in the opinions themselves that that was somehow a salient fact. But it was kind of an interesting sidebar to what took place.
1: Any responses from the panelists? Well, I, I think it's interesting
4: um, that religion wasn't a part of this technically, but it runs through the opinion. It's sort of at the heart of the opinion, and the way the court accepted the case it seemed like the answer was going to be, you know, almost definite that we knew the way the case was going to turn out from that way. Um, And I thought it was interesting, too, that the court had turned down, perhaps because of a different uh, mix of justices on the case, had turned down cases in which there was an actual conflict. A photographer who was uh, asked to do a wedding, a... um, Florist who was asked to provide flowers for a wedding, and, and the court took this. and I think you're right, Cannon, that the stipulated facts in this really uh, hurt Colorado as it tried to um, defend its actions. Jess,
1: would you like to talk about Sackett?
3: Uh, well, sure. You know, Sackett's an interesting case in in uh, uh, in many dimensions. This was a case that. Uh, clarified the meaning of waters of the United States when it comes to the provisions of the Clean Water Act. Uh, and the case is familiar, uh, certainly to, to Bob and to me, because we've encountered it uh, uh, several times uh, over the years as it has come back and forth uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, the bottom line of the case was that, was that the uh, – that waters of the United States needed to be construed more narrowly than courts, and the EPA have understood it to be uh, to this point in an opinion by Justice Alito. And interestingly enough, uh, the case was a unanimous unanimous case in the judgment, in that every justice of the court believed that in the particular uh, permitting application for Priest Lake, Idaho, that uh, the Sackett couple wanted, uh, the government had gone too far. Uh, But in the concurring opinion by... Justice Kagan, there's really no discussion of why she believes the, the, the government had gone too far in this case. It's really all about why she believes the majority went too far in uh, explaining the new rule. But uh, to, uh, to explain what that rule is, Justice Alito, uh, and it's, I'm, 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 uh, I'm the Justice Alito impersonator today because I the other case also was written by him that I'll be uh, explaining. Uh, In contrast to his well-known opinions uh, of the previous term, which had some provocative language in them, uh, this opinion is quite moderate. It's really in the sense, it says, this is a nagging question that has existed for many years about how to define this amorphous term, waters of the United States, and here is our uh, extraordinarily reasonable uh, resolution of uh, of that question. And he says that, in essence, to be covered by the Clean Water Act, it, the a wetland, something that is not an actual lake or uh, river or, 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 uh, or ocean, uh, what is, for a wetland to be covered by the Clean Water Act, it needs to be essentially uh, indistinguishable from one of those navigable bodies or larger bodies of water. It has to be visibly connected to it. Uh, it has to be something that is really uh, 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 in a, a, uh, an appendage of that body of water, and the uh, and this guidance applied to this property in Priest Lake, Idaho, and apparently will limit the scope of the act going further with projects that may have much greater environmental consequences than uh, a single home site in this uh, remote part of Idaho. Um, so. That is the clearer guidance, uh, as we saw in some of the other cases involving federal regulations, certainly in the in the student loan case that I think uh, Jan will be talking about later. Uh, you have the uh, majority essentially saying, we can't believe that Congress would have intended to give authority this broad to an administrative agency. And since they haven't explicitly said they are, uh, then, then it would be unreasonable to imply that they have. And the dissenters take the sort of mirror image, and they say, the Congress did not deny them this authority. They gave, they used broad language. Who are we to read into it a restriction that the Congress chose not to uh, uh, place itself? And that's really the the difference, the sort of other ends of the telescope that you see between the uh, majority and the concurrence to be technical, but what is it, But for all practical purposes, um, a, uh, a dissenting opinion, uh, you know, and uh, this case, although it is even less relevant to the legal question than the, the point Cannon brought up about how manufactured uh, the facts were, may or may not have been in the three hundred three case. But uh, the, the the Sackett case is a is a, a it's it's a good example that that. Uh, uh, plaintiffs and test cases aren't what they want to be because I just remember over the years as I like filed this case like oh there's another Sackett development and I look oh Sackett was arrested for sex trafficking oh Sackett pleaded guilty to a reduced charge and went to jail and you know so it just sort of like struck me as kind of uh, you know usually uh, not relevant to the legal question in the case but often when you know activist groups try to bring an issue and try to frame a case in a sympathetic way they look for extraordinarily sympathetic plaintiffs you know people have a great story to tell this may not have been as great a story to tell but <laughs> it, it certainly does uh show that when the court is looking at this issue they are you know they're not uh, uh acting on their personal views of the you know party's conduct but they're looking at the legal issue before it because um and, and that's what we had in, in in i'd say the, the, the sackett, sackett case
1: uh, I will return after we talk about uh, the student loan case. I'll return to and get some overarching thoughts about the state of administrative law and the relationship between the court and administrative agencies. But before then, Bob, can you talk about Moore versus Harper? Sure.
4: So you can tell uh, who, who's the silver tongue appellate lawyer and who's the law professor and who are the scribes who need to type things out uh, to make sure that they remember it. Uh, you know Mor v Harper was about the independent state legislature theory and would have been uh, a huge change in election law uh, that uh, state legislatures have almost unlimited power to decide the rules of federal elections and draw congressional maps even if they're extremely partisan without any interference from state courts and uh, case came from North Carolina where Republican legislative leaders um, had said we get to do this without interference. Um, That uh, this comes from the uh, Constitution's Elections Clause which says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Um, But Six members of the court said that that was wrong, and the chief justice, as we've talked about, uh, took the case uh, for himself and wrote, uh, the legislature acts both as a lawmaking body created and bound by its state constitution, and as the entity assigned particular authority by the federal constitution. Both constitutions restrain the legislature's exercise of power. So he was joined by the uh, liberal justices in this, and also Justice Kavanaugh. And this would have been, is one of those cases that would have been a big deal uh, if it had gone the other way. And even as it was, it, uh, it was a change, uh, because while the um, court said that they weren't buying the big independent state legislature theory, They were concerned about uh, courts getting too involved in this. And so the Chief Justice uh, added this caveat. Although we conclude that the Elections Clause does not exempt state legislatures from the ordinary constraints imposed by state law, state courts do not have free reign. State courts may not transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review such that they may arrogate to themselves the power vested in state legislatures to regulate federal elections, and he said by transgress the ordinary bounds. What does that mean? They don't say. Um, they say that these cases are complex and context specific, and that uh, they will watch out for this, and they'll know it when they see it. Um, the uh, the dissenting justices said uh, that that was wrong. Um, Three of them, Justice Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, they said that the court shouldn't have heard this case, shouldn't have reached a decision, and those of us covering it every week uh, kind of were expecting this case to be dismissed as moot because after the North Carolina Supreme Court had said that this plan uh, was unconstitutional under the state constitution and imposed its own plan, the election was held, state elected supreme court switched from a democratic majority to a republican majority they reheard the case and this new majority on the court said "Uh, actually we don't have any power to um, to police partisan gerrymandering and so we're going to go back to the old plan Um, so the three dissenters said that should have been the end of it for the uh, supreme court but then two of them thomas and gorsuch went uh, beyond that, saying if we were going to reach it, that they did um, they did have, think that the independent state legislature theory uh, had a lot to say about it. Um, and they're very wary of federal courts getting involved. So interesting reaction to this decision, I thought, um, from uh, the voting rights activists and Democrats and liberals, particularly, who were very worried about it. Um, some embraced it, uh, others said this just sets up federal courts uh, to have more of a role in what has always been something left to state courts. Um, the other side said let's take a win when we get one uh, from this court and realize that uh, we sort of got what we wanted and that the bigger picture was seemed to be six justices um, a little wary about uh, challenges to um, uh, some of these election cases that might be coming up in 2024.
1: Jen, student loans.
2: All right, I'm just moving moving through here. So, student loans came up in two separate cases: one um, with an individual, one coming up from the states. And so, the court first examined standing, which is the doctrine that under the Article III Constitution, there's a limited judicial power. And so the court and federal judges are only supposed to be evaluating cases and controversies, which means that in every case for a federal court to have jurisdiction under the Constitution, um, there needs to actually be a real controversy. And so the court unanimously found there was no standing uh, for the individual claimant um, because that individual was essentially saying, um, you know so so the statute under which the under which the Biden administration purported to forgive student loans is called the Heroes Act, which, um, if the Biden administration's loan forgiveness plan had come within the confines of that act, that act would have permitted the administration to act without going through full notice and comment rulemaking procedures, which normally requires agencies to the extent we're going to talk about administrative law later, um, on substantive matters to give a certain comment period so the public can be involved and at least flag concerns with the draft rule before the rule is finalized and then uh, published to give some kind of notice and opportunity for public participation. That didn't happen here. The claim was that from the individual if the Biden administration had not thought it had authority to act under the HEROES Act, it would have instead operated differently, It would have given more procedures, which would have allowed the private parties to say, we are not adequately helped by your current rule, give us a different rule that will help us more. And since there was no real concrete financial injury to them based on the Biden administration's action, the court actually fairly readily, I think, dispelled the idea that there was a standing there, and quickly moved on really to the uh, decision in the next case. Um, So in contrast to Harvard and USC, which were sort of argued on the same day as a pair but separately issued one decision here the cases were again argued the same day but the court issued two different decisions refusing to uh, conc- to, to do it would perhaps arguably have been an expansion of standing doctrine by uh, hearing the individual claim and so instead uh, turned to the state case and in that case found standing and then moved fairly quickly to um, to the substantive issue and I think this is actually I mean it was a I'm a 20-something page opinion which suggested that the court, even though it was a 6-3 ruling, did not feel it had to tie itself up in knots, that it was not a particularly close statutory case, it didn't come up with new interpretive principles or new interpretive doctrines. I, I think essentially it was a fairly, I'm sure folks will disagree, but I'm gonna make the case it was a fairly straightforward, ordinary meaning interpretation of a statute that said the secretary may waive or modify provisions related to financial assistance programs. Um, essentially if it's necessary to keep um, folks from being in worse financial position due to a national emergency or hardship. So there were many um, aspects of that arguably modest statutory authority that the parties went after and said showed that there was no way that the Biden administration could forgive $430 billion of student loan debt uh, for people having between 10 to $20,000 worth of, of loans being forgiven under that modest provision, which seemed to be oriented toward national emergencies that arguably were not tied really to, um, to the scope of the program or the timing of the program, perhaps. Um, and that also waive or modify or a lot more modest than what was happening here, which was a major expansion of the program. Justice Barrett wrote an interesting concurring opinion, essentially um, clarifying that even though the major questions doctrine, which uh, was talked about a lot last year in the West Virginia versus EPA uh, decision, that it really wasn't essential to the court's decision here, that this was not about um, reading a statute differently if a question of economic and political significance is involved that here ordinary meaning um, principles, regular across the board textualist principles would apply to find the Biden administration had acted uh, far beyond the scope of statutory authority here. So this, is, this, this case I think really is about the axis of does Congress, when it uh, puts forward a statute authorizing administrative or executive authority, does the executive have to stay within the confines of that or can the executive, you know, after years go by, get how forward leaning, how broadly can the executive branch um, read such statutory authority? Uh, here, not only did it seem to be clearly uh, beyond the, the bounds of the statutory authority, but there were also uh, there was also other color and context that suggested Congress had really not um, intended this broad of an action. The secretary had not previously seen his or her authority under the Heroes Act to extend this far. Although one final final thing, I mean the Biden administration is not the only administration that did try to take student loan action. I mean, the Trump administration had also taken action to kind of put a pause on repayment um, that was not found uh, you know, found unlawful by by a court. So here, you know perhaps the number of years later, going clearly a few steps further than the Trump administration had gone. This was challenged pretty readily, and the court uh, uh, reached, I think, a
1: resounding decision against the Biden administration here. Jess, Bob, do you have any reactions to that? have am coming at this from a different perspective.
4: Well, I wonder, um, Jen, why I think the Chief did go to the major questions in this opinion when they said that it wasn't needed, that you know, it was clear from the statute, and then he sort of threw it in again Um, and you know, Justice Kagan in her dissent said, you know, whenever this court wants to do something now, it just throws up the major questions uh, doctrine. And I wondered why he sort of gave her that opening.
2: Well, I mean, it's hard to know the minds of justices, but I think one reason might be that he obviously having, you know, written about the doctrine previously, I don't I mean, doesn't think of it as a negative doc- doctrine, thinks of it as more legitimate. I My guess would be if, I mean, if I had to guess, but obviously I have some sort of interpretive priors that are influencing this. I mean, I sort of perceive the chief, particularly in his chief role, as always taking whatever steps he feels like he can or wants to or are needed to sort of Dial back the significance of an opinion, and to the extent that this opinion brings in major questions, it keeps folks from spending perhaps as much time talking about what's coming down the pike next. Also, I don't—I don't actually think he believes it is an entirely new doctrine put into place by Western Virginia versus EPA last term, and I think it seems to me—and maybe Canon or you all have different views—but that. He is one who in a more pragmatic sense likes to sort of give alternatives or extra, talk about all the tools in the toolbox to help in a particular case. But I share your general, the general cynicism or idea that yes, I think to the extent that we're in a discussion about major questions, it is a tool that the court will apply when it thinks it's helpful and useful. The chief thought it was at least helpful to make a fig leaf to it here. but I don't think it, he perceives it as being outside the bounds
1: entirely of textualism. Jess Cannon, any thoughts on those cases?
3: Well, I think it was interesting that the the, the, the Chief Justice, in addition to looking at this uh, aspect of uh, the you know, Heroes Act or whatever, you know, mentioned a broader concern about the way that uh, administrative agencies have been acting, and so it seemed that he was, you know, as if it weren't already evident, uh, signaling. A you know a, 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 a philosophical or a or, a, or a broader jurisprudential view about the bounds of um, of the executive's autonomy to to apply statutes. So I mean he wasn't I mean he didn't leave it just at student loans. He said this is there's a there's a pattern here. And I and I wonder if if that's a message to the administration to or what I mean who, who is he talking to? I mean. Obviously uh, to the extent he was talking to the dissenters, uh, they, they did not find that persuasive since they specifically <laughs> said, there you go, you just don't like policy and, and therefore your, your made up doctrine is, is striking it down. So it didn't work with them. Who was he talking to when he brings in those, those broader concerns that are not directly related to statutory uh, interpretation of this uh, student uh, loan relief uh, uh, plan?
1: Kenan, any thoughts on that case?
3: I think the Chief Justice was
0: speaking to the lower courts. We've now had two opinions in two years that have relied expressly on this major questions doctrine. And perhaps not coincidentally, that's occurring at a time when um, we have an administration that is in the process of deciding some enormously consequential issues through rulemaking. And those rules are inevitably going to be challenged. Uh, Spoiler alert, they're inevitably going to be challenged in part based on the major questions doctrine. And lower courts, in short order, are going to have to grapple with those arguments. And so you know, I think, in some sense, my own reaction to this opinion was that the reliance on the major questions doctrine was intended to put a little bit more, uh, by way of meat on the bones, on this um, doctrine, which, as Jen says, You know, both has a footing in administrative law that goes back, I think, some distance, but also is a relatively new thing in terms of its expressed denomination as a discrete doctrine. And there's a really fascinating concurring opinion from Justice Barrett uh, that that I think lays out the the conceptual groundwork for this doctrine in a very interesting way.
4: I was hoping Cannon was going to explain standing because... I've only covered the court since 2006, and I still don't understand who has standing and who doesn't. Do you?
0: Particularly in cases involving states, I think it's fair to say that the doctrine appears to be evolving. <laughs> it always is.
1: Uh, would you like to talk about Allen versus Milligan?
0: Sure. So I think this is an interesting case, because in some sense, I think it just defies the narrative that the conservative side of the court achieves, you know, quote-unquote conservative results in every single case. And you know, as was true with Moore versus Harper, there's sort of an interesting debate about how significant this is between those who actually litigate the cases and those who want to characterize the court as moving in a particular direction. Um, This is a case involving um, section two of the Voting Rights Act, and I'm going to resist the urge to get too far down into the weeds of how (laughs) voting rights law operates because it can get very complicated very quickly. But the basic gist of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is that as amended by Congress, which becomes significant, it prohibits voting practices that have either a discriminatory intent or a discriminatory effect, which includes practices that dilute the strength of votes of racial minority voters. And that becomes significant in this context, in the context of redistricting. So this case involves a challenge to Alabama's redistricting plan, which was a plan um, adopted, you know, I think in the wake of the 2020 census that would have created only one um, African-American majority district despite the fact that black voters make up, I believe, 27% of the population of uh, the voting age population of the state of uh, Alabama. And um, this was immediately um, challenged, and as the case came to the Supreme Court, um, a three-judge court had concluded that um, the MAP likely violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because of the way that um, uh, a voting rights law operates. These cases basically go from a three-judge panel directly to the Supreme Court, and the court heard uh, oral ar- argument in October. And in yet another of the opinions written by the Chief Justice, but this time with a five-to-four majority that consisted of the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, and the court's three Democratic appointees, um, the court agreed with the lower court um, uh, and uh, therefore with the challengers that there was likely a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act here. And... um, the the case involves the application of the so-called jingles factors Uh, again I'm going to resist getting into these factors but these are the factors that are basically used to evaluate claims that are brought under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act but I think that the sort of uh, perhaps most critical part of the opinion is that in analyzing maps for redistricting what courts do is to basically compare the uh, maps against um, a benchmark and the state of Alabama made the argument that if you could come up with a race neutral uh, benchmark, and if um, the map that was prepared um, uh, compares favorably to that benchmark, it's okay. That would have worked um, a revision to section two of the Voting Rights Act, and uh, the majority rejected that um, revision, rejected the argument that a race neutral benchmark should be used in the analysis. And interestingly, the chief justice, in his opinion, talked at great length about how when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, it uh, intended Section 2 to operate quite expansively. What's really interesting about that is that the chief justice at the time that Congress amended uh, the law was working in um, the Reagan White House and was very involved in these issues. And what Congress essentially did in the 1982 amendments was to essentially overrule a Supreme Court decision that limited um, the applicability of Section 2 to practices that had a discriminatory intent without a discriminatory, uh, that had a discriminatory effect without a discriminatory intent. And in this case, uh, the four other Republican uh, appointees dissented, both Justice Thomas and uh, Justice Alito. And in particular, you know, they sort of emphasized the fact that the effect of essentially requiring the state of Alabama to draw a map that um, uh, took greater account of the number of African American voters, and in particular, potentially requiring them to draw a map that would require two districts that were majority uh, black districts, would be to force um, the drawing of district lines based on race, the suggestion being that that could itself raise constitutional concerns. Uh,
1: Before I turn over to audience questions, any overarching thoughts about the term themes you want to pick out, things you want to talk about in terms of it being Justice Jackson's first term, maybe how the court has changed? I leave it to you.
3: Well, starting with, with uh, you know the the, the Allen v. Milligan case, uh, you, know, you know that Ken did a, a great job explaining. Um, I think that if I would think about it, one of the broad takeaways, the you could look at um, Allen v. Milligan and, and Morvy Harper, which which Bob. Uh, uh, explained for us, uh, that this is a very conservative court, but you can't say it is a partisan Republican court that acts uniformly in the immediate political interests of the Republican Party, because whatever nuances or reservations there might be for those two decisions, the immediate effect of both of those cases is to deny uh, an electoral advantage that the uh, Republican Party was seeking for the 2024 election. So uh, it, it certainly you know, doesn't take away from the, the court's overall uh, trajectory to the right but it does I think uh, belie arguments that it is purely an arm of the, of the Republican Party in what it's deciding And also I thought you know the, the, the Chief Justice was you know redeeming some some markers he put out in the past. I mean in Shelby County uh, a decade ago where he uh, wrote the opinion that uh, removed the coverage formula for pre-clearance under the Voting Rights Act, essentially eliminating a major tool. That the Justice Department had to uh, protect minority voting rights, he said that Section Two, the substantive provision of the Voting Rights Act, remains in force, and that will be sufficient to uh, protect any uh, residual matters that might uh, arise. Even though we're no longer in 1965, and things are much better in terms of race relations. Well, in this decision in in uh, in Allen v. Milligan, was essentially redeeming that that promise that he left out there, Well, we're going to continue to enforce section two, just like I said we would 10 years ago. And the tone of the opinion was very different. I mean, he, he s- explicitly referenced, you know, history of racially polarized voting in Alabama, while in uh, Shelby County, he was like, black voting participation in Alabama is higher than ever. It's higher than white voting out. It's what's the problem. So uh, there was a difference in tone there and a suggestion that he is uh, remains aware or has become aware of some criticisms that are out there. And likewise, in Morvy v. Harper, when um, when the court uh, ultimately declined to find a remedy for partisan gerrymanders under the federal constitution, the chief justice put out a laundry list of other potential remedies that, if this is really a problem, might be there. One of them he mentioned was state law and state constitutions. And in the Morvy v. Harper case, again, he's saying, I meant it, uh, we're not gonna interfere with other mechanisms within the the federal system that uh, that could address these these issues if they if they arise. So those are some thoughts.
1: Bob thoughts?
4: Well, I, I think uh, Justice Jackson really established herself very quickly um, in a way I haven't seen from other uh, newcomers to the court. Uh, maybe Justice Gorsuch jumped in uh, fast too. He only had a little bit of the term left when he was. Uh, there, but you know, she was. She spoke more than any other justice, according to people who keep track of how many words the justices say. She asked more questions than other justices. She wrote solo dissents more than in more than any other justice on the court now did in their first term. I thought there was one very interesting instance where I won't try to describe this case to you because it's just too complicated, but a criminal case in which she wrote a 39-page dissent um, to the majority and Justices Sotomayor and uh, Kagan together wrote a two-page dissent. Uh, So they didn't join her um, and wrote their own and I thought that that was interesting since they were all on the same side. But I think that she uh, is really sort of establishing her view of the law and, uh, and writing for herself a lot uh, in a way that I think is very different for uh, a rookie.
1: Cannon, and then last word to Jen.
0: Sure, so I would just sort of um, offer three very quick headlines. The first is that I think that the court is perhaps moving more incrementally than critics of the court. Would have one believe, and I think in some sense this term represented a reversion to the court's ordinary way of doing business with a, a much greater degree of unanimity. You know, much less consistency in the alignment of justices, as Jen pointed out. And you know, of course, a lot of that depends on what the court has on its docket at any particular time. Um, but you know, this seemed like a, a somewhat less polarized term, <laughs> even though in some of the highest profile cases you did have. Um, The justices are perhaps breaking down on more predictable lines. I think the second um, headline I would offer is that I think that the reports of the chief justice's demise were greatly uh, premature. The chief justice played a really central role this term in, I think, shaping not only uh, uh, how the court decided cases, but, you know, kind of the contours of the legal rules in a lot of the key cases. Um, And again, he wrote the opinions in, in a lot of the biggest cases. And I think Um, A lot of those opinions, I think, reflected a high degree of judicial craft. This was a year that I think was really kind of the year of the Chief Justice in many ways. then the third observation I would make, and I think that this is really kind of going forward a critical thing to keep an eye on, is that the six Republican appointees on the court are much less monolithic in their jurisprudential approach than the three uh, Democratic appointees. And I don't mean that as a criticism of either side. It's just an observation. The three Democratic appointees, you know, voted together um, in, I think, something like 88% of the court's cases. Um, The number was much lower for the Republican appointees. And I think that that reflects the fact that there are some meaningful jurisprudential differences. You know, I would say that the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh are probably the two most pragmatic members of the court, and they seem to define you know, what consists uh, today of, a, a, as the center of the court. It may be a different center from the center five or 10 years ago, but they seem to be the justices who are most likely to dictate the outcome in close cases. You know, Justice Gorsuch, by contrast, is a somewhat more idiosyncratic voice uh, on the court in certain areas of the law, like Indian law and criminal law. He tends to vote with the more uh, 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 liberal members of the court, uh, and indeed does so, I think, quite consistently. And then you know, you've got Justice Barrett, who I think is emerging as one of the most impressive voices on the current court, both in terms of her um, writing and in, in terms of kind of offering a, a thoughtful perspective that perhaps melds a certain degree of Midwestern pragmatism with um, some really incisive constitutional analysis. And then Justices Thomas and, and Alito, who are what they are, I think, probably the least uh, deferential to precedent um, and you know, probably the, 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 the most sort of consistently uh, conservative members of the court. And, and those differences have really come into play in the cases where the court doesn't break down on predictable lines. And so I think the thing to watch going forward is the extent to which that continues to be true. Jen.
2: Yeah, I agree with a lot of that and just consistent with what, um, I mentioned at the beginning, just in terms of the justices and which ones were most frequently and least frequently in the majority. I mean, Justice Thomas in the majority, 76% of the time, the Chief and Kavanaugh together in the majority 95 and 96% of the time. One I think remarkable thing about that actually overall is that the least, the justice least frequently in the majority was still in the majority 76% of the time. So that really does suggest that we spend a disproportionate time focusing on the cases that seem to be divided. There are a lot of unanimous judgments. and you know, as Cannon said, the chief and Justice Kavanaugh are in the majority um, more than uh, the others. Um, but one final thing: I mean, when the chief takes these opinions and writes them, it does allow for his more pragmatic or um, moderate sense to frame the decision. But I, but I do think, and again, we'll never know because we can't peel back the curtain and who knows, I, I, forgetting which justices have restrictions on which of their papers, papers will eventually come out. So, some, some decades from now, we'll be able to get some of the writings, I imagine, that uh, went into different opinion drafts, for example, leading to the final uh, decision here with students for fair admissions. But uh, in a case like that, where you have an originalist justice like Justice Thomas, who also has really thought a lot about these issues, and then a more pragmatic person like the chief, both signing on to the same lead opinion in full um, I I would really imagine that there was a real desire by at least some of those six justices to make sure that there was one unifying opinion and almost certainly some negotiating or discussion about the contours of the language and how things were going to be couched that would allow a very originalist uh, purist pure in theory justice and folks who are much more concerned with continuity of the past to all be able to come together around every single word in a decision of great significance. So all that to say there actually is a lot of hidden power or more subtle power sometimes in the theorist on the court, um, because in the drafting and in the concurrences that maybe they would have written otherwise and decide to hold back, there can often be a lot of influence on the scope and the reasoning that ends up coming through in the final majority opinion in ways that um, might have great
1: significance. Well, let me open it up now to audience questions. Uh, A mic will be coming. Let me give you a warning. This is not your opportunity to lecture. You get two sentences, and then I cut your mic (laughs) I will not be gracious, so go ahead, Dennis. Dennis Kirk, I'm wondering if you're reading anything into that
4: administrative state being looked at closer by the court in the Chevron Doctrine, where the court's deferences to the agencies might be reduced. Yes,
3: uh, yes. We we have a case coming up that looks uh, more directly at the at the Chevron doctrine, and uh, and I have to say that uh, you know I think that there must be civil procedure professors everywhere so amazed and gratified that so many people talk about something called the Chevron doctrine. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was you know a a, a, a rule that uh, the the court adopted in the eighties. Suggesting that when uh, regulations are ambiguous or le- legal statutes are ambiguous, the uh, the, the, the so-called expert agency uh, should receive deference from the courts uh, in applying the, the the statutes that it uh, that it, uh, it's been assigned to uh, to uh, uh, implement. Uh, and obviously, we see a lot of skepticism on this court toward the judgment of these agencies and whether that kind of deference is uh, you know remains warranted. So I think we'll continue to see. Uh, doctrine emerging that, uh, that may be, uh, reducing that type of deference going forward.
1: Here in the front. Oh, thank you. Uh, Leon Peace, um, and I had a, a question about the,
4: um, in the past, the court has, uh, worked very hard to maintain the, uh, outward appearance of intramural collegiality. Um, those of us who were in the court during the last, um, uh, delivering the last uh, rulings, got the sense that from the body language there might be certain level of tension in the intramural workings of the, uh, uh, with respect to the Justice society. What sense do you get in terms of the uh, general
1: camaraderie, if, or lack thereof, within the, uh, this court? Well, Cannon, you uh, stood up there in front of them not too long ago, so what do you think? I
0: mean, they had a certain degree of discord toward me because the last time I appeared in front of them, i got I got fewer than five votes. I'll leave it at that. Um, you know it's it's I think that's a really hard thing for those of us on the outside to judge, um because you know, I do think that the court has long not only viewed it as important to be perceived as having that degree of camaraderie. I think the court really tries to achieve that camaraderie because i I just think for my own, Experience, you know, they're all there for life. They know, they have to hang out together, and so they have powerful incentives to try to get along on a personal level. You know, I think it's interesting. We all read the tea leaves. Um, you've alluded to one type of tea leaf, which is, you know, how do they react when they're reading out the opinions? And I've certainly read, you know, the the same press reports, um, including by these gentlemen, that, that suggest that sometimes, you know, it does seem like um, passions are running high, as you would expect given the stakes. Um, I think one thing that's interesting to me is that I think that the rhetoric in the opinions has gotten a little bit um, turned up. Um, I don't know to what extent that's attributable to relationships between the justices. I mean perhaps the most um, fiery exchange this year was between of all people Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, which I think reflects that that sometimes that happens sort of without regard to you know broader jurisprudential events. Um, but I also wonder to what extent that may just be due to the fact that it feels like opinion writing has gotten more informal. And I think when you write more informally, sometimes it comes across as, as sharper than if you're writing in a more academic style. And I think we have a number of members of the court who write you know, either informab- informally or in a fairly accessible way. And so maybe that's one of the reasons we think that.
4: I thought there were two things interesting. One, uh, the Chief Justice at an event uh, in May said... Uh, that he every time he walks down the hall, he's happy to see one of his colleagues and engage in conversation with them. And then he said, But sometimes I don't walk down the halls. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I think that's one answer uh, to your question. And then I thought, you know, it was pretty extraordinary in the student debt uh, case in which the Chief Justice wrote, you know, there is becoming a trend on this court when. For dissenters to say that we have exceeded our uh, role. And he wanted the public to know that wasn't true and that it doesn't, they're not disparaging each other. And then Justice Kagan came back and said, well, yeah, we are, kind of, because, (laughs) um, you know, it's always been that we're, you know, justices are supposed to point out when they think that the court has exceeded its role and it would be wrong not to. You sort of got the idea, like, which one, you know, Got, the, got their hands on it before it went to the printer to have the last word there. And so I, I think that that does show that there's, uh, there's something going on between the, those two sides.
1: Did I miss anyone on this side? Yes, in the very back. Sorry, um, well, uh,
4: I'd like only to thank, I come from Brazil, and I want a support from you. We're gonna vote the abortion uh, next August maybe and i i signed up the amicus curie for mississippi with 141 scholars from did United you have a, a
1: question for these panelists
4: no no i just want uh, if you can uh well i can share with you our amicus curie from for well scholars maybe from afterwards here. but for I'm now just,
1: I to their say expertise that. is here like for to S- talk about the supreme S- court yes
3: i i've heard of a michigan law that purports a heavy fine if you address someone with the wrong pronoun. Wouldn't that fall in the same case as Colorado, where it is now the state coercing speech? Ah, It's
0: the first I've heard of it. I'm not familiar with the law. There's
1: one last question here in the middle. Oh, I'm uh, Peter Humphrey.
4: I'm an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. The, uh, question I, the question I have is uh, if ultimately a plaintiff doesn't have uh, all the power in these free speech cases, because if the court were to rule against the free speech, uh, the plaintiff can simply say, okay, I'm giving severance pay to my boys on Monday and I'm out of business on Tuesday. And could a, a really woe court then come back to the businessman and say, oh, no, you're not. You're staying in business one more week to make the cake or finish the website.
3: I think there's some war powers cases where the the government can, you know, take over uh, properties, like to make sure that, you know, national defense materials are available and so on. But I'm I'm not aware of any cases where the government has, has done has done uh, that sort of thing. Are, are you,
0: Ken? I No, and I, I, I don't think that Colorado would construe its anti-discrimination laws that way. But, you know, I will emphasize one thing that I said in my remarks on 303 Creative, which is that, you know, I do think that the pre-enforcement context of these lawsuits inherently makes them somewhat more theoretical, because what you have to establish in order to bring one of these lawsuits is you know, just the likelihood of enforcement rather than
1: the reality of it. Well, we are out of time. Please join me in thanking our panelists.